Episode 79, Evidence-Based Treatment for Social Determinants of Health. Today, I speak with Monik Bott from Healthify. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Everybody's talking about social determinants of health these days. What I mean by social determinants of health are a person's physical environment, their behaviors, their socioeconomic situation. CMS even launched an accountable health communities model recently with the intention of helping to address these factors. In fact, the one thing that everyone largely agrees on is that social determinants of health are responsible for 80% of outcomes, more or less. And that's based on really well-founded evidence by very well-respected organizations like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. But as much as everyone agrees on the general nature of the problem, there is very little in the way of any kind of generalized understanding on how to solve for it. Enter Healthify. Today I speak with Monik Bott about Healthify's answer to helping vulnerable patients, patients who need help beyond the strictly clinical, get better outcomes. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Monik. Hey, thanks for having me. Healthify is a startup that you founded to help healthcare organizations manage social determinants. Yeah. Before we get into how to solve for social determinants and Healthify, it might make sense to define exactly what we mean when we bandy about this term. What do we mean by social determinants of health? It's now such a commonly used phrase and it encapsulates so much, but I think the simplest way to understand it is the determinants that affect where someone lives, works, and plays that by and large affect their health. So I'm talking about someone's food situation, housing, employment status, their access to childcare, their access to transportation, the things that we don't classically consider as clinical care, but have a dramatic effect on how one thrives in their community. That's really what we mean by social determinants. It's the different things that someone's life is impacted by long-term that we must really address and understand if we're serious about really improving healthcare. The one thing that struck me I got my hands on this deck, which was pulled together by Cascadia Capital. It's called The Future of Healthcare Today, which I highly recommend. I've been carrying it around with me for two weeks now. (laughs) There's a couple of slides in there which show this study by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and also somebody whose initials are (laughs) (laughs) UWPHI. I probably should have looked up exactly who that is, but nonetheless, there's a couple of slides in there that are about what drives outcomes. And this is how it's broken down. Physical environment is responsible for 10% of outcomes. Social and economic factors, 40%. Health behaviors, 30%. And clinical care, 20%. Only 20% of a person's ultimate outcomes are driven by what happens in the medical services or clinical services that they receive. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I think that the WHO has put out some good studies as well. But the, yeah, the reality is, is that anywhere from, depending on what study and, and numbers you're looking at, anywhere from 35 to 
of our health outcomes are driven by our social determinants. The classical statement, your zip code really defines your life expectancy is very much true. It's a, and it's a very scary reality where you can be in one zip code and live a median age of 84 and in a different zip code 15 years lower than that. And that's predominantly due to social determinants and these factors. It's startling to see that number and defined by extremely prestigious organizations like RWJF and WHO. But then when you see it on the ground, it's such a stark reality and it begs our attention in a sense that these are really the needs that are mattering. It certainly does beg our attention, especially because there's another stat which I'm looking at, which shows that if you compare what drives outcomes to where dollars are spent, it is almost the opposite. Right. (laughs) You know, I'm looking at something that says that 88% of money is spent on medical services, despite the fact that only 20% of outcomes are driven by those services. Yeah, I find that when you're looking at these needs, you have to have a very long-term view. And short-term thinking, I think, has plagued the healthcare industry for a very long time, partly because the incentive structure rewarded that short-term thinking, and it's easier to be reactive than proactive. But I think that what we're in a really great time right now, we're really lucky to be in a time where people are thinking more long-term and people are thinking more proactively about people's health. And I think now that we have enough research evidence, as you quoted RWF, from multiple lines of inquiry that these are the needs that are, are going to drive up spending and really impacting outcomes, I think we can reallocate how we spend our money in healthcare to address these needs, which is really exciting. You mentioned that we're at a time where we can now focus on these social determinants. Is that a factor of new reimbursement structures moving yeah. towards value-based healthcare, or is it that people have just cottoned on to the notion that social determinants actually matter, yeah. <laughs> or kind of some combination of both? I think it's a combination of both. I think the articles from RWGF, from CHCS, California Healthcare Foundation as well, they go a long way in kind of highlighting the problem. But I think what has convinced people to invest in it has really been the trends we're seeing in the payer and provider space. So on the payer side, we have obviously an expansion in Medicaid, but expansion in Medicaid managed care. And a lot of these Medicaid managed care payers have understood this for a long time and they have staff that address these needs. And now it's becoming more important for them to do so as the Medicaid membership increases. And you see this even in the exchange population as well. And on the provider side, you have so much innovation going on. Outside of ACOs that have high Medicaid populations, you also have the patient-centered medical home model. You have the health home model. You have something called the Medicaid 1115 waiver program. But most people might recognize it in New York as DISRIP, which is just purely focused on Medicaid delivery reform and connecting people to services and coordinating their care. So there are more avenues for people to innovate now in the space. But in terms of standardization of what works, I don't think we're there yet. But I think people are now ready because policy tailwinds are strong enough to really invest in the space versus just having a strong emotional connection to the need and knowing that it's a problem. Let me ask you this. Relative to social determinants, one of the things that is obvious, especially if you're a provider who's trying to make a living, That some of the things that are important if you're in a value-based environment or sorry, you know, fee for value or pay for value environment are kind of, let's just say the opposite of what you need to do in a fee for service environment. So by attempting to make services be outcomes based and be really focused on outcomes, you actually diminish 
your reimbursement in a fee-for-service environment, is focusing on social determinants and really being concerned about social determinants and investing spend there. How does that play in a fee-for-service environment? Is this something that you you can't really focus on because your reimbursements are going to, it's going to be a cost without a benefit or how does it toe that line? I think it definitely plays a stronger role in a fee-for-value world. In the fee-for-service environment, there's still efficiency to be seen if you coordinate around these needs more effectively, because the burden of someone's social need impacts the entirety of the clinical care delivery system. It impacts the way they take their meds, it impacts the way they adhere to treatment plans, so on and so forth. So there is inherent value in just fundamentally addressing these needs because it simplifies the rest of the system in, in quite a few key ways. But I think in terms of scaling up the solution and having enough internal stakeholder value and an internal want to train people on addressing these needs and, and, and having it fundamentally addressed as part of clinical care, you need to be on the path to transitioning into a fee-for-value world, which I think is very much the case now, which is good news. I could also see how some things, and obviously we're not talking about one kind of homogeneous social determinants is not one thing. So certain things yeah. like, for example, getting access, being able to attend your appointment, getting a right. ride. Right. Even if it's a fee for for service world, you, you can't get paid if a patient doesn't show up. So exactly, exactly. So I'm sure there's some things that fit into different models more cleanly than others. Let's introduce Healthify here because I think you yeah. have a really interesting and very unique thing going on over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you explain it. What are, what are yeah. you doing? Yeah, I mean, I'll start from the beginning. So I got my start in Baltimore working with a really fantastic group called Health Leads, basically doing community health work and live case management at a pediatric clinic. I was also doing research at a mental health clinic, and, and some of my co-founders were doing Spanish to English translation at an ED, specifically working with high-needs Medicaid patients. And that's really the genesis of Healthify and why we got started, because we were in, in East Baltimore, which has a, a lot of need. That community has a lot of need. And we were seeing day in and day out that uh, the patients we were working with and the families we were working with, what they really cared about, what they self-identified as the biggest issues in their life, weren't really any of the clinical issues that they were coming and presenting with. It was really all the social needs I talked about earlier, food, housing, childcare, employment, and transportation, as you said, huge issues in Baltimore as well. Let me just interject for a sec. So we're seeing these terms in a really sort of general way. Could you give a specific example? So patient shows up or maybe doesn't show up. What's an example of an employment concern or transportation concern or something in these categories? Yeah, patient shows up, family shows up for a pediatric visit. And it's revealed in the encounter that the family does not have food for the rest of the month and can't pay for food the following month. Uh, that aspect of food insecurity, which is relatively severe in that case, that's going to lead to an outcome where that child and that family is 30 to 40% more likely to be hospitalized in the next year. That's a, that's a huge, huge concern. And, and this, the other scary reality is, is that knowing that that family is food insecure and, and going into, again, why we got started, knowing that, that family is food insecure, again, just does not happen very often in the current workflow. So it has to be revealed in the encounter or there has to be a screening to take place. And there are many ways people do screenings right now in the provider world and even in the payer world, but there's largely no standardization there. And you can get the sense from the perspective of the family that if this is going to impact my health and I'm not able to afford food by the end of the month, the stress is higher. The ability to pursue really any other opportunity is significantly diminished. 
And that is part of their health. And, and so that's kind of what I'm talking about in terms of a family who is food insecure and very discreetly cannot pay for food in the following month. The impact that has on their life is tremendous. I also imagine that this plays into obesity, which might be counterintuitive until you start looking into the fact that carbs are the cheapest calorie. So if you're very concerned about the price of something, what you tend to wind up with is what amounts to yeah. junk food, which despite the fact that you can't pay for food, right. you wind up obese, which causes, yeah. as we know, all kinds of other problems. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. We see that often. And in fact, there are really great organizations now directly in East Baltimore who try to support families with limited budgets to see how they can still purchase nutritious food for them and their families, which I think are really great. It's not direct food service delivery as some community-based organizations and social service entities support with, but more teaching someone how to eat healthy with the constraints that one might have, which I think is pretty powerful as well. Yeah. And I can just imagine being a parent in that environment where some clinician is scolding you for not to be <laughs> yeah. for your right, child right. eating junk food when you're in between this rock and a hard place or teaching someone how to use their insulin or take their medication when the real problem is that they don't have the right nutrition to prevent diabetes. Yeah, it's highlighted a great point. It's a frustration on the provider side as well, the actual physician who's meeting, because he or she knows this. They, they know that if they're working with families on Medicaid or a duly eligible family, that these needs are going to be apparent. And sometimes they feel powerless to address these specific needs. And RWJF actually came up with another great study a few years ago now, where they, uh, they asked physicians, do you think that social needs should be part of a core component of clinical care delivery? It was over 80% said, absolutely, obviously. But then they said, how many of you feel that you can really address these needs? And at the time, they felt they didn't have the tools or really the ability or the knowledge to do so because it's not a core part of medical education. So there is a disconnect there on the provider side, too. I can totally imagine from the provider side, the equal frustration. I mean, here you are, you went to medical school, you know, with the cardiometabolic right, right. You know, system, you know, all about that. But you're dealing with someone who can't afford anything but bags of Fritos. And right. I'm kind right. of being glib. But yeah. at the same time, it takes a lot longer than seven minutes to figure out that problem. Yeah, yeah. I interrupted. You're in, oh, yeah. you're in <laughs> East Baltimore is. and you, yeah, uh, you so identify this. Then what? East Baltimore trying to do very much this, trying to understand families' needs and, and get them to the right service. And obviously, we were at the relatively prestigious hospital, Johns Hopkins. And what we were seeing was we knew that these needs are important. We, we were seeing it day in and day out, but we weren't really able to address it. And the, the pain points we identified were, as I brought up earlier, number one, we just don't know which family has which need and the severity of that need. So I always throw this statistic out, again, uh, from RWF, who's done such incredible research. But, you know, screening for something like food insecurity happens 7 to 12% of the time. And that, that's coming from relatively prestigious hospital systems. So we don't have a good barometer of knowing who in a population is in need for these specifically these social issues that we, again, keep in mind, this is driving so much of outcome. So 7%, we know about what's going on, even though we know 60% of an outcome is driven by these needs. So that's pain point one. The second pain point we really noticed all the time was, even if we figured out someone has a need, through all the, the workflow process that's established, figuring out how we can help was very difficult. There's uh, amazing 
community-based organizations doing incredible work in each community. But on the clinical and healthcare delivery side, most people don't know what's available and they don't know how to get there. And they don't know what the eligibility requirements are or the intake requirements are, so on and so forth. So one would spend hours to kind of show an example is, let's say we meet with a family and we identify that they need infant and child supplies and need to apply for early head start childcare program. Figuring out what's the community center that has infant and child supplies, figuring out the eligibilities for early head start, where they should call, so on and so forth, that can take hours for someone who isn't experienced. And even if they are experienced, still extremely difficult and time consuming. So there's this information gap where I know we have a family with need and their service is available, but I just can't connect the two because I just don't know what's out there and I don't know how to connect the dots. And then the final kind of pain point we saw, which I think is really the biggest elephant in the room in, in the entirety of healthcare is coordinating the service, following up. Did the service help when I sent you there? Do you need more help? What is the impact on outcomes? And I think that is really going to be one of the main ways to move forward is understanding what happens after we support someone with a service and, and seeing what the impact is. And we can be much smarter about how we support the next person. We can get smarter about what services we offer, so on and so forth. And I think that plays quite well with where we invest our healthcare dollars long-term because we really need to track everything from the need to the service, to the follow-up, to the outcome itself. I was just going to say that given the critical nature of these social determinants of health and the major impact that they have on outcomes... What you're saying seems to me to be the equivalent of is let's make this evidence-based. Absolutely. Absolutely. If we are acknowledging the fact that social determinants are such a large part of outcomes, then figuring out how to deal with them should be just as evidence-based as anything else that we're up to. That's 100% true. 100% true. So yes, I mean, those were the, the pain points when we looked at this and said, can we really scale up ways to address these needs in, in multiple geographies with different types of populations? via technology and, and via services and really understanding through data what works. And that's really why we got started with Healthify and have made a lot of great progress since then. But the evidence base is pretty key. And I, I do want to highlight some great research coming that's already out there. You know, Housing First programs have shown tremendous success. There are a lot of Medicaid payers in the space that have done some great programs with food delivery that seems great results. Hennepin Health is obviously a landmark institution that's done great work with social determinants. Montefiore, the health system here in New York, has done great work with social determinants as well with in intensive care management with much of their population. But I think one thing I'm a huge fan of is community health workers. Similar to some of the work that some of my team was doing out in Baltimore, community health workers hired directly in the community, working directly with community members around these needs is, I think, a, a really powerful way forward. Because one thing I haven't talked about much, but I think is quite important, is when you talk about these needs with a family there needs to be a level of trust there. And, and that's something we've learned over time is when you're talking about someone's housing in situation or employment situation, these are, by all accounts and purposes, tough subjects to talk about. And the more trust you can build earlier on, the, the quicker you are to help someone access the service and resolve the issue. Before we get into some of these specifics, I think it yeah, would be yeah. good to put this all in context because we're talking about making social determinants evidence-based. And I'm starting to lose track in some ways of what yeah. we're measuring. Are we measuring yeah. it at the macro level? In other words, insert name of program here, how effective is that program at yeah. its entirety versus this other program? 
Right, right. At producing some sort of outcome that we're looking for versus some micro element of that program. So let's do this, yeah, yeah, uh, Monic. Yeah. Maybe you could explain what the after is. So in other words, how has Healthify, we've obviously got this quagmire. It's a mess. We know that we've got social determinants that are such a large part of outcomes, but obviously it's very difficult for our current medical paradigm to incorporate these elements within the, the standard of care. There's lots of stuff going on. Where do they send them? There's, a, as you said, there's an information gap. So the problem is pretty well articulated. What happens now? Let's follow a patient. So yeah, say, the, yeah. say, say there's a provider that is is yeah. using the Healthify system. Patient walks in front door, sees who and what happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> With Healthify in play. Yeah. So uh -huh. a patient walks in the front door and they can take a web-based screening that asks them questions around their social needs, or they can be matched up with a care manager who will do the same. Based on how they respond, we'll, we'll figure out what are the best services for this individual based on who they are, where they're located, what needs they have and the severity of their needs. If I'm a provider and I have decided to deploy the, the Healthify solution, somehow or another, your questionnaire will show up in, on some device which is patient-facing. So the information that they enter is then processed then on some Healthify backend. That's correct, yeah. Okay. So we've done uh, patient-facing, and I can talk about the pros and cons later, but we've done patient-facing and staff-facing where the staff administers a screening it's more classical uh, in the care management space where they ask the questions and they're using Healthify to understand what are the best services. So that's the first step, identifying the need, either verbally or through the screening tool. And then we match people on the service and that's step two. And we present that information and all the information you might need to get there. What are the hours of operation? What are the directions? What's the phone number? So on and so forth. What would happen would be the patient is walking in and like you said, either they've got the device themselves or they're talking to somebody, information yeah. gets added into the system and then snap your fingers and there's going to be a result screen that pops up yeah. where the care manager, the case manager is looking back at the patient and saying, okay, Pete, here's what we've got for you. There's exactly right. Typically... The question is about, do you have enough to eat? Then the feedback is going to be, here's the best food bank that's closest to your house. Or is there any specific nuances to the information that's fed back? Yeah. So there's a nuance in terms of what are the next steps to get there or what the application process is, or maybe a food bank is not the appropriate option based on some other answers. So the, the entire thing is dynamic. So one can always search for the service, but will match based on how someone responded but if someone is food insecure and has an interest in a food pantry, then we'll basically present them, here's the ideal food pantry for you. And that can be shared via text or email or printed out, obviously. But that's kind of step one is sharing that information. Obviously, that's all tracked. And that's great for some of our organizations who are using Healthify. So they can see now, out of all the people who have been screened, what is the percentage of people who are food insecure? What is the percentage of people being sent to different services? But then we do another couple of cool things in certain areas where now I can change the status of that referral. So let's say Pete in this example actually goes to the specific service. Healthify will maintain engagement with Pete and, and ask, hey, Pete, how did it go? Did you find it helpful? Do you need more help? And Pete can respond. And that's logged for that care manager to see. So that care manager can now say, okay, Pete got the service, got there. 
seems to be doing well, doesn't seem to have another referral needed. And in fact, what we can do is actually get that food pantry on Healthify. So they're also involved in the care process too. So not only is the care manager now knowing that Pete showed up, the food pantry knows that Pete's coming and they can let the care manager know that Pete arrived. So actually coordinating between the healthcare system and the community-based organization and the patient in need. And that's really what we facilitate, but track all of it to get to that evidence base that we need to make sure investment continues forward in the space. When you say Healthify maintains a relationship with the patient, is that through the care manager? In other words, Healthify sends some note to a particular care manager to follow up with Pete? Or do you guys also have phone support or some way that you're contacting patients directly? Awesome question. Yeah. So we don't have phone support currently. <laughs> it's been it's definitely been on our mind uh, to do something like that. But right now, it's more notifications to the users of Healthify and, and the patients via text. And, and kind of go communicating back and forth via that and seeing how that scales with, depending on the staff mix that the, the client is really using, the, the payer and provider client we're working with. Sounds like you've got a number of different stakeholders that have access to the Healthify hub. Obviously, you've got the provider who yep. is typing the information in and, and who's the point of contact to the patient. Sounds like you also have an ability to sign the patient up themselves. That's correct, yeah. And then... You also have the providers of these services, i.e. Your, your food pantry or childcare or other services that might be available. Like they have an entry point into Healthify as well. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we're excited about is some really forward-thinking partners of ours really want to coordinate directly. It's not enough for them to track the need and send the information to the patient and find the appropriate service. They really want to involve the community-based organizations that are rendering these services because they know they're important as part of their quote-unquote provider network. So we're really excited about that. And you're absolutely right. The, the community-based organization or social service entity can log in, maintain their information, and coordinate care with the healthcare entity as well if they've moved forward to do that type of work. So I think that the chance of success is higher when that happens. And the ability to understand success is a lot more effective that way because you have one more way to understand if someone received the help. And that can be tied down to claims data, that can be tied down to utilization, so on and so forth. So we're pretty excited about that. How do you qualify the service providers? In other words, as you said at the top of this conversation, one of yeah. the most difficult things is just dealing with this information gap. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are trying to provide help, and it's hard yeah. to figure out who they are to begin with. But then once you even figure out the list, how do you know who's on the up and up or... right? How do you prioritize or, or qualify who's five-star and who's four-star? Yeah. Uh, assuming yeah, there's that, something like that going on. I yeah. Think. Yeah. No, that's kind of like a Yelp, uh, Yelp for social services. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there are a couple of sites that sometimes do ratings, but for the most part, no one has really assessed quality of these services. And that's part of what we support with. Not only can patients rate the services, but staff members can rate the services and favor it and comment all the kind of things you would expect when you're looking at for really anything in life. We want to apply that to a lot of these community-based organizations and social services. But to actually get the data, we go through a pretty long process. And in this process, we actually call each service. So that's where we actually have a, a call center that validates this information and make sure that we have the eligibility requirements right, so on and so forth. But it's, it, it can get quite hairy. I mean, it's a very complicated space and uh, no one has spent time really standardizing 
the way people get access to these services. So it's kind of our gargantuan feat to do that we've learned over time how to how to make it better. And I, I don't know if we'll ever get 100% right, but we've made a lot of progress in how to really get this information explained to people in the easiest fashion. Are you focused in certain very specific geographies? Because I would imagine that scaling into many geographies is a challenge because the information is so geographically specific. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a large challenge. So right now, we're active in 24 different states, hopefully 50 one day, <laughs> but right now 24. And it takes us, uh, it takes a lot of time to learn what services are available, reaching out to some of the larger community-based organizations to see if they're willing to share some information to make sure we have their on-the-grounds experiential knowledge. So there's a, it's a mix of high-tech and high-touch to really make it happen. But yeah, it's, and, and usually when we enter an area or, and start scaling up, it's usually because there's a health system or Medicaid payer who wants to work with us there. And then we said, all right, let's, let's start working together here and let's get this database ready to go for people to use. What have you learned along the way? What are some lessons about managing social determinants of health that like what's worked, what has a not worked so well? How have you evolved? I think we expected the screening to be wildly successful. And I, I do want to mention the recent CMS announcement about the accountable health communities where screening for social needs is an integral component. And for people who don't know about this, uh, CMS recently announced a pretty huge initiative to support addressing social determinants for all intents and purposes via the accountable health communities model. And I'm happy to go more in depth in that. But I think we started out thinking that screening would be very easy to deploy in the clinical workflow. And what you realize is Sometimes, depending on where someone's health system's progress is in hiring care coordinators, community health workers, care managers, so on and so forth, introducing a screening for social needs sometimes doesn't fit. And in fact, what we found is how you deploy the screening matters and the language you use matters. So I'll talk about some key examples. So we work with a very large ACL out in Baltimore. And we asked, uh, when we started presenting the, this web-based screening to patients, we found that a lot of people did not want to share information. So we have a data privacy section before you complete the screening that allows the patient to say, I want to share this information or I want it to be stored, so on and so forth. And we found that initially 47% of people weren't willing to share information. And they were very, even though they were willing to complete the screening, they didn't want it to be shared with anyone. And then we changed the language. We changed the language on this initial screening to make it, uh, to really explain up front and center that this screening is going to help your family get connected to services and made the, the language really ends focus that this is not just a screening for the health system to collect data because people do screenings all the time. This is a screening made and customized for you to get access to services that you self-identify are important. And that privacy sharing metric increased to 87% of people willing to share uh, information. So small tweaks like that on how screening is delivered for these subjects that can dramatically increase response rate, which I think is key because a lot of people haven't spent a lot of time in the space of really building products for vulnerable populations. And there's a lot of design decisions and uh, user interface and user experience considerations that there's not a lot of research on. So we're kind of, it's relatively uncharted territory where we're trying to learn as we go and figure out what is the appropriate way of building this interface and making sure it works well at scale and engages people at scale. So I think there's a lot of product considerations in play that we've learned over time. That makes a ton of sense. And I can really see relative to the screening why that would be so. I mean, if you don't present yeah. the benefit of doing something, then from a patient standpoint, there's only 
risk or cost or right. potential embarrassment in the mix. Are there any other lessons that you would like to call out or maybe yeah. another way? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, there's a lot. <laughs> so I mean, in terms of, I mean, there's a lot to be done in terms of, from a health system's perspective, I think what we found is that uh, certain health systems are hiring a lot of care managers and community health workers and care coordinators with various levels of experience. And I think the the way people train and engage with their staff long-term is pretty key. So we've seen a lot of people churn different staff in different, uh, different ACO settings and health home settings across the U.S., and we found that what's really important is constant training with staff, especially when they're working around these needs. So community health workers, because the reality is, is this is very tough work. And no matter how standardized and easy it is to find services with Healthify, the reality is, is you're dealing with very intense needs and populations that need a lot of support. And I think sometimes health systems forget that uh, the staff that are working with these patients need support as well and constant engagement. So having a very rigorous plan in place that thinks long-term about retraining and re-engagement and uh, really highlighting success for staff can go a long way for staff morale and efficiency uh, for staff itself. I think another uh, thing to really also understand is working with community-based organizations, they need to be on the table from day one and they need to be engaged from day one. And it's it's all a matter of engagement where a community-based organization that might want to support a health system, they want to be involved in the conversation of how they're going to support, what's going to be required from them, and what is their incentive structure to stay. And outlining that very transparently early on goes a long way in setting up the right relationship between the system and the social service entity kind of for long-term success for their patient population. So methodically thinking about engagement and how you're going to keep people involved in addressing this problem is going to be key because the, the timeline is long. Three lessons are, and I'm translating the first one into marketing speak, so forgive me, benefit-driven yeah. messaging <laughs> yeah, yeah. to the patient. Number two is training, rigorous training of the staff. And I can also see how you had mentioned trust earlier. And I can see how reducing staff churn and making sure that people were engaging, interacting with the community in a specific way would go a long way to build trust. And then third, the social service engagement, like making sure you're we're managing the life cycle from beginning to end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's about 400 additional questions I could ask you, but I'm a little <laughs> cognizant of the time here. So if, yeah, if someone yeah. is interested in talking further about this fascinating and really important topic, where can they get a hold of you, Monic? Or where can they learn more about Healthify? Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyone who wants to really fundamentally address social determinants, we'd love to chat. Uh, you can just Google Healthify or reach out to me directly at my first name, Monik, M-A-N-I-K, at healthify.us. And we'd love to talk. This is a, a kind of the elephant in the room in healthcare, and it's going to require stakeholders from multiple avenues to do it right. And we're in the process of learning as much as we can from everyone. And we're really excited to move forward. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thanks so much, Stacey. Take care. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show. 
so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.